Well, thank you again, choir, and good morning, everyone. Not only those of you that are here in this place, but also those of you who are tuning in from other parts of the city and other parts of the province. This is Baptism Weekend, and I just want to remind you uh, of the command that Jesus gave to be baptized. If you haven't followed the Lord in baptism, I want to challenge you not to put it off. It is a clear command to, to obedience that he called us to. Rationalize all that you want. The bottom line is Jesus wants you to be baptized, and uh, so be sure that uh, you follow up on that. We have baptisms in our weekend services, but you also need to know that uh, we have baptisms happening throughout the week um, here in this building, in the West Campus, and um, even at the river um, sometimes. And uh, I wish uh, you could have heard the testimonies of all those that we've already baptized this weekend. Uh, friends, God is on the move. And we're seeing people from all parts of the world, some of them from um, atheistic backgrounds, some of them from other religions, uh, come to a miraculous faith in Jesus Christ. And God is using all of us together to introduce them to Jesus. Amen. Amen. And it's with that in mind, I remind you of the second part of our mission statement. Our mission is not only to introduce people to Jesus, but also to help them to become fully devoted followers of Jesus. And uh, uh, we need many of you to step up and become mentors and disciples for the many people who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ, to walk alongside them. You've already heard the commercial about that, but I'm, I'm challenging you to pray about this and uh, you know, go to the di Disciple Maker uh, training table after the service or contact Greg, Pastor Greg Grunau uh, sometime during the week and let him know of your desire to be involved in that ministry. Max Licato writes, You know what disturbs me most about Jeffrey Dahmer? What disturbs me most is not his he and his acts, though they are disgusting. Dahmer was convicted of 17 murders. Eleven corpses were found in his apartment. He cut off arms. He ate body parts. He redefined the boundary for brutality. But that's not what troubles me the most. Can I tell you what troubles me the most about Jeffrey Dahmer? Not his trial, as disturbing as it was, with all those pictures of him sitting serenely in the court, face frozen, motionless, no sign of remorse, no hint of regret. But that's not what troubles me most about Jeffrey Dahmer. May I tell you what does? His conversion. Months before an inmate murdered him, Dahmer became a Christian, said he repented, was sorry for what he did, profoundly sorry, said he put his faith in Jesus Christ, was baptized, started life over, began reading Christian books and going to chapel, began to share his faith with other inmates. Lucado says, that troubles me. It shouldn't, but it does. I mean, grace for a cannibal? I'm wondering, do you have the same reservation that Lakato does about certain individuals? Is there someone in your life that you have a hard time loving? Now, as Christians, you know, we find it hard to admit that we don't love everyone because, you know, we're called to love everyone, aren't we? So, let me help you out a little bit. Think of the person that you like the least in the whole world. Think of your least favorite person list, okay? The person that's not been good to you or is still not good to you. Get that, you got that person that, or those people in mind? Now let's just say for the purposes of this message that that person or those individuals are your enemy. So who is your enemy? Maybe it's someone who cheated you financially. Maybe your enemy is a friend that you trusted and yet hurt you badly. Maybe it's your parents who messed you up emotionally with 
incessant demands and accusations and put-downs. Maybe it's someone who abused you sexually or emotionally or verbally. Maybe it's a child that you sacrificed everything for and now they've turned against you and they want nothing to do with you. Maybe your enemy is a spouse who cheated on you or who left you for someone else. Or maybe it's a spouse who makes for a real good roommate but withholds their love from you. Maybe your enemy is the person who opposes your view on things like abortion or gay marriage or capital punishment. Or maybe your enemy is the person who lives a more liberal lifestyle than you do. Or perhaps it's a person who lives a more conservative lifestyle than you do. Or maybe your enemy is those of other religions. Or the terrorists, the murderers, the rapers, the abusers. Who is your enemy? Ever put someone behind the bars of your disgust and your anger? Lock the door and throw away the key? You know, I doubt that there's a person in this place who hasn't felt that way about some individuals. Now, as you think of that person, imagine that you were given the opportunity to bless that person. And not just a little bit. No, you were given the opportunity to bless that person in a significant, life-changing way. Would you do it? Well, if you can feel the emotions surrounding all of that, well, now you can enter into a little bit of the emotions that Jonah had when God called him to go to Nineveh. As we learned last time, God asked Jonah to go to Nineveh to warn them about the coming judgment of God. And Jonah says, I'll get right back to you. He heads out the back door and he skips town. He goes on down to Jaffa. Some translations write it out as Joppa. And he catches a cruise ship to Tarshish. And he does that primarily because as far as he's concerned, the last people on the planet who deserve God's grace is the Ninevites. You see, they were a cruel and an evil people, known for their brutality and their violence, the Jeffrey Dahmer kind of brutality. And Jonah is convinced that they deserve hell. They do not deserve grace. Well, God doesn't give up on Jonah. He pursues Jonah. And he strongly encourages him to reconsider by having the ship that he's on experience an encounter, the mother of all storms, of, of hurricane, hurricane proportions. And after spending a time of quiet solitude in the belly of a great fish for several days, Jonah comes to see things God's way. And after he's vomited onto the beach, and God says, Jonah, for the second time, go to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh. He doesn't argue. And he's faithful. He goes, and in a very matter-of-fact way, he warns them that the judgment of God is coming. And amazingly, God uses Jonah, half-hearted Jonah, to bring an entire city from the king on down to acknowledge their wickedness and to turn to God. In fact, Jonah 3.7 says that in order to show their sorrow, they wore sackcloth, which is really uncomfortable, itchy clothing. The Bible says even the animals were made to wear sackcloth, although I rather doubt that cats did. <laughs> I, you know, I, I totally agree with John Ortberg, who loves cats as much as I do. Um, and, you know, he says the problems with cats is, is that they don't know how to repent. 
you know, and I, I, I agree with him. He's right. I mean, think about it. If a dog does something wrong, you know, he'll put his head down, he'll whimper, and he'll crawl over to the corner feeling so bad about what he's done. I mean, a dog knows how to say I'm sorry. But have you ever seen a cat feel sorry about anything? Not a chance. I mean, a cat, you know, will destroy your leather couch. And, and while you're on the floor crying and saying, how could you? You know, he'll just look at you. He'll just stare you down as if to say, you know, it's not my fault you left me alone with a leather couch. It's your fault. But I dig digress. <laughs> you know, cat lovers, I just need you to know that I don't hate cats, okay? I know there's a vicious rumor out there. It's just not true. I don't like them that much, but uh, I don't hate them, okay? I just want you to know that. I'm just looking for a little humor here. Uh, <clears throat> I've yet to find it. Anyways, uh, through the mercy and the patience of God and the ministry of Jonah, the entire city of Nineveh turns to God. And verse 10 says, God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. He had compassion and did, did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. And when Jonah finds out that God has withdrawn his judgment, that he's been merciful to the Ninevites, he couldn't be more miserable. Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. I just knew you'd do this. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life. For it is better for me to die than to live. The guy's a bit depressed, wouldn't you say? Now that's an interesting request. Considering a short time before when he was in, you know, neck deep in seaweed in the belly of a great fish, he was asking the Lord to save him. And so, you know, Jonah really wasn't asking God here to take his life. He was just acting like a spoiled child because... He so badly wanted to see the Ninevites get what they had coming. And God says, have you any right to be angry? God challenges Jonah's hatred toward his enemies and he calls him to extend grace instead. And so how do we, in light of this, extend grace to the person that's on our least favorite People list. Or in the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, how do we love our enemies? Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Notice Jesus didn't say, I tell you, like your enemy. We're not commanded to like our enemy because like is involuntary. You know, you can't control who you enjoy being with. But divine love is a decision. It's a decision to love even those who you think don't deserve to be loved. Even those you think don't deserve to be forgiven. So how do we do that? How do we love the person that we like the least. Well, first of all, you won't be able to love your enemy as long as you wear the judge's robe. The only way that you can begin to love your enemy is to take off your judicial robe and let God be the judge. Let God be the judge. Our job is to hate the sin, not the sinner. There should be something in all of us that despises sin. 
Because it destroys lives, it destroys homes, it destroys communities, it destroys nations. But you see, it's God's job to deal with the sinner. God is the judge and we're not. Look at verse 5. It says, Jonah went out, sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the vine. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die. He said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Should I not have compassion on these people? Jonah? So what is God saying to Jonah here? He's teaching Jonah a lesson about his sovereignty. He says to Jonah, in the same way that I created you, in the same way that I created the vine that ended up providing shelter for you, so I created the Ninevites. And in the same way that I extend grace to you, when you were drowning in the ocean or when you were neck deep in seaweed in the belly of the great fish, in the same way that I provided shelter for you with this vine, as creator, if I choose to extend grace to the Ninevites, then I will do so, and you have no right to question me about that or to be upset about it. Because, Jonah, you are alive right now only because of my grace. On the other hand, God says, if I choose to send a worm and to destroy this vine, I am perfectly justified to do so because I created the vine in the first place. In the words of Exodus chapter 19, uh, 33, verse 19, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And God is saying, Jonah, I'm God and you're not. As God, I have a right to extend grace or to bring judgment. As my child, I am asking you to extend grace to your enemy and stay out of the judging business. Because it's not your business. You leave that to me. God has a right to judge because he is holy and just. He's totally pure. He is the absolute standard of integrity and ethical and moral purity. And so even if it seems that our enemy is getting away with their sin, God's holiness assures us that the guilty will not go unpunished. Romans 2 verse 2 says, Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Our God is the truth. He knows the truth about us. So his judgments are right. We, on the other hand, are fallible and sinful. We don't know all the facts about a person's past. We don't know their motives or their intentions. Only God knows all of that. And so only God is really qualified to judge them. In Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Paul says, You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Paul says we humans are unworthy to judge others because we're sinners too. 
You know, it's hard to admit this, but there are more times than I care to admit that I am the person that Paul describes here. I am a self-righteous hypocrite. You know, it hurts just to say it. I'm a Jonah. And when something is done wrong to me, I'm inclined to want to see them get what they've got coming to them. I'm inclined that way. A while back, I was driving down the highway by myself, looking in the rearview mirror, and I see this car, this really hot sports car coming at me, going about twice the speed I'm going, and just, boom, past me. And as I see him coming, and as I see him whip by me, I'm immediately thinking, oh, buddy, I hope you get pulled over. <laughs> so we, I drive over a hill, and I start laughing. Because sure enough, there are lights a-flashing. The hot sports, sports car is over on the side of the road. And as I drive past him, I slow down just enough for him, hopefully, to see my smiling face. <laughs> and I'm thinking, that'll teach you, hotshot. When we catch someone doing something wrong, especially something that's been wrong, done wrong against us, isn't our first reaction to hope that they get what's coming to them? But when the shoe was on the other foot and I got pulled over by speeding once, <laughs> the last thing I wanted was justice. I was pleading for grace. And for mercy and saying, do you know my son? He's a cop. <laughs> you see, I'm unworthy to judge others because as Jesus says in Matthew 7, I'm inclined to see the speck in someone else's eye, but so many times I'm oblivious to the plank that's sticking out of my eye. When someone hurts me, I often attribute the worst possible motives to that individual. But when I hurt someone else, I can't understand how they could attribute the worst possible motives to me. I attribute the best possible motives to my actions. I'm capable of lecturing others about the cost of procrastination while I'm sitting at a table eating far more than I should because I'm just trying to procrastinate getting at a very difficult tasks that I need to get to. You know, one of the most honest confessions that I've ever heard was from a fellow who is constantly badgering me about how worldly and how immoral Christians are and how I needed to preach less about grace than I needed to preach more about the judgment of God and about sin. And this gentleman was so frustrating. When, when I would see him coming, I'd just want to go in the opposite direction. He was a very miserable person, and my sense was he was a very lone person, lonely person. And yet God got a hold of him one day. And he came to me totally broken. His self-righteous, angry demeanor had, had totally changed. And he said to me, you know, Pastor, I now realize that my motivation for judging others was not out of concern for their spiritual welfare. No, it was to justify sin in my own life. It was to make me feel better about the secret life that I was living, filled with pornography and out-of-control lust. You see... I would preach on the judgment of God sometimes. It would just kill me to preach it. It was so hard to do it. And yet he would run into me after and he'd say, way to preach it. 
But then when he became aware of how much he needed the grace of God, he became far more gracious himself. You see, folks, we're unworthy to judge because we tend to accuse others and excuse ourselves. We are unworthy to judge because we tend to maximize other people's failures and we tend to minimize our own. Reminds me of the old timer who was at the doctor's office getting an annual physical and near the end of the appointment he turned to his doctor and he said, you know, he said, Doc, he says, I'm a little bit concerned about my wife. I, I get the sense that she's getting really hard of hearing. And the, and the doc said, whoa, 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 careful, Harry. He says, you know, women can be pretty sensitive about stuff like that. You better not say anything to her until you really know, know the facts. He says, here's what I suggest you do. He says, when she's in the kitchen, you know, just ask her a question. First, you know, the other side of the kitchen, and then maybe come about halfway and ask the question again and, and see if she hears you. So Harry agreed. So the very next day, you know, he notices his wife's preparing lunch at the kitchen counter. Her back's turned to him. And so he goes all the way to the end of the kitchen and he says, is, is dinner ready yet, hon? No response. So he trots over about half the distance and again he says, uh, is dinner ready yet, hon? Still no response. And man, he's thinking, boy, oh man, she, she's more deaf than I thought. So he gets up really close behind her and he says, is dinner ready yet, hon? And she spins around, she says, for the third time, yes. <laughs> now that's the way we tend to be, prone to maximize other people's problems and weaknesses and minimize our own. In Matthew 7, Jesus was speaking to believers and he said, Do not judge, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. When Jesus said, Do not judge, he wasn't saying that we're never to confront a fellow believer about sin in their life. Well, to help us with that, just turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. 1 Corinthians 5, and this is what Paul writes there. It should be in the screen in front of you. He says, I have written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning people of this world, but that you not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother in Christ. In other words, a Christ follower. But is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater, a slanderer, a drunkard, or a swindler? With such people do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside of the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Now in this verse, Paul's saying, when a person becomes a follower of Jesus Christ and he lets it be known that they are committing themselves to a local church fellowship, and they get connected with a small group of people where they are known, where they are loved, where they are cared for, and are challenged to grow in their faith and also to become uh, fully devoted to Jesus Christ. And then somewhere along the journey of life, they drift from God or begin to fall into habitual sin. Then those who know that individual and love that individual need to humbly, and I say humbly and sensitively, confront him in love, according to the guidelines of Matthew 18. In this situation, it's appropriate for Christ-like followers to humbly judge others by confronting them in love with their ultimate good in mind. They don't want to see them drift from God. They have their concern, their ultimate best at heart. In fact, they hate doing it. They don't like this at all, but they will out of love. They'll exercise tough love out of love for that person. 
just like a loving parent will discipline a child, will confront a child that's going wayward. You don't love your child if you just sit back and say, well, do whatever you like. That isn't love. However, when it comes to people outside of the church, we are not to judge them. We are not to have a hypercritical spirit or a condemning attitude toward them. We're to leave that to God. We're to love them. We're to serve them. We're to be kind and gracious to them and leave it to God to convict them about their attitudes and, and the way that they're living their lives. And folks, I really hope that when you're dealing with neighbors who have a different view of politics or lifestyle or whatever the issues are than you do, or when you're dealing with politicians who in your mind are just totally off base, I pray that you will treat them in a Christ-like way. You will treat them as you would your best friend even though you don't agree with what they believe or what they're advocating. You leave the justice issue to God. Your responsibility, my responsibility, is to demonstrate the love of Jesus to them. Now some people will say, well, how can a loving and a just God permit injustices that take place in the world? How can he allow people to hurt other people and to bring such pain and destruction in the world? Why does he allow these things to continue year after year? Why doesn't he judge these people and take them out? Well, we're going to look at that next week when we look at Nahum and Zephaniah. But these are good questions. But you see, the better question is, why didn't God judge me yesterday when I said that sharp, caustic word to my wife? Why didn't he shrivel the hand of the fellow cheating on the exam? Why didn't he strike down the woman who was on the phone this morning slandering someone else? The question is not, why did he let that person die? The better question is, why am I still alive? Because we're all worthy of death. Paul says it's because of God's grace. Which means, he does not give us what we deserve. But he treats us according to his mercy. If he treated us according to his justice, according to that which we deserve, we would all be wiped out. Because the Bible says we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But, says Paul, God is gracious and compassionate. Peter says in 2 Peter 3.9, he wants all of us to come to repentance. He wants us to extend the love and grace that we have received from him to others, including our enemy, by letting him be the judge. That's the first way that we love our enemies, by letting God be the judge. Furthermore, we love our enemies by seeing them through God's eyes, God says to Jonah in verse 11, But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. Should I not be concerned about that great city? God says these people cannot tell their right hand from their left, which is an ancient expression meaning these people don't know what they're doing. When it comes to spiritual matters, when it comes to morality, they are ignorant. Their lives lack direction. They're like orphan children or like sheep without a shepherd. And God is saying, if they knew me, if they knew the truth, the chances are really high that they would not be living the way that they are. 
And you see, the same is true today. If your spouse had known earlier who she is in the eyes of God, she would have had the capacity to love you more. If, if your friend had understood why he is so insecure and that he could find his security and his identity in Jesus Christ, he would have been a better friend to you. If your parents had, had better insight on how their upbringing had messed them up, and if they would have known more of God's life-changing principles on parenting, they would have been able to bless you more as parents. And God is saying to us, you need to realize that the Ninevites, you need to realize that your enemies, they're crippled. They're hurting. There's so much that they don't realize or didn't realize. Yes, they hurt you. They failed you. But God asks, can you, along with me, have compassion on them and choose to forgive them? When you think of your father, for example, do you see a successful businessman who had no time for you? Or do you see a lonely, insecure man who was told from the time that he was growing up that he would never amount to anything? And the only way that he could stop those tapes from playing over and over and over again was to work harder and longer hours to prove that person wrong. When you think of your mother, do you see a stern woman who always puts you down? Or do you picture a 25-year-old woman exhausted to tears, trying to earn the approval of her husband? or trying to earn the approval of her mother or her mother-in-law. Take a fresh look at those who have hurt you. Without excusing their behavior, try to understand what is it that they faced in life growing up that at least in part molded them into the people that they've become. Sometimes it's easy to forget that within the heart of a friend or a spouse or a parent is, you know, beats the heart of a little child, a teenager, who faced harsh criticism, neglect, immense hurt, and never had the privilege to really learn and to understand why they have so many holes in their life and how they could find healing. Take off the glasses that God smudged from the mistakes that they made as a spouse or as a parent, as a friend. Take off those glasses and ask God to give you a deeper understanding, a new perspective, His perspective on them. Take time to ask your spouse or to talk to your parents or to your friends, or even a stranger who doesn't fit your category of people that you feel comfortable hanging out with. The homeless person, the wealthy person, the, the older person or the younger person, the liberal or the conservative person, the, the atheist or the religious person. Get to know them better as people. Ask them questions about what it was, about what it was like for them to grow up. The struggles, the pressures that they faced. Why they made the decisions that they made. All of this is loving your enemy. Trying to see them through God's eyes. So choose to love your enemy by letting God be the judge and by seeing your enemy through God's eyes or at least trying to. And finally, choose to love your enemy by blessing them. 
You know, Jonah may not have liked the Ninevites. Well, we know he didn't. But he did choose to love them. And as a result of him going to Nineveh, an entire generation of people were rescued from sheer destruction. You love your enemy when you choose to no longer judge them, when, when you choose to see them through the eyes of God, but nothing will impact your enemy more than when you choose to bless them in tangible ways. When you choose to pray for them, when you choose to listen to them, give them your time, serve them. In short, when you choose to relate to them and bless them in the same way you would bless the person who is at the top of your most favorite people list. Philip Yancey, in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, he tells a story about a man named Larry Trapp of Lincoln, Nebraska. Trapp was a grand dragon, member of the Ku Klux Klan. For some time, Trapp did everything he could to convey his hatred for Jews in general. And then he began to focus his hatred specifically on one Jewish man and his family. He sent them pamphlets mocking Jews and denying the Holocaust ever happened. He made threatening phone calls to them. He targeted their synagogue for bombings. And yet in every case, this Jewish family responded with concern and with compassion. In fact, Trapp was a diabetic since he was a child, and over time he was confined to a wheelchair. And he was rapidly going blind. He was all alone because people who hate like him end up living very lonely lives. And because he was alone, he was rapidly coming to the place where he could no longer care for himself. And when the Jewish family heard about this, they invited Trapp into their home and they cared for him. They showed him so much love that over time he could not help but love them back. Trapp made the headlines in the papers when he renounced his hatred, tore down his Nazi flags, destroyed his many boxes of hate literature, spent the last months of his life seeking forgiveness from Jewish groups and all those that he had hated. Bruce Larson says, the scary thing about having enemies is that when you fight them, when you refuse to forgive them and you don't wish them well, over time, you become just like them. On the other hand, when you receive God's grace yourself and you choose to extend it to your enemy, you have not only chosen life, but you have gotten closer to reflecting Jesus, the one that you know and love. You know, as I was preparing this message this past week, I, I came to realize that the people who influenced me the least in all these years of my life are those who are self-righteous, those who are unkind, who are harsh, who are negative, hypercritical, unforgiving, hold grudges forever. But then I got to thinking about the people who profoundly impacted my life, who God used to judge my life without ever saying a word. People who spoke a powerful sermon with their life and didn't even know that I was watching. And in every case they accomplished it because first of all they were people who despite hardship and failure in their life authentically reflected Christ in their walk and in their talk. And secondly because they loved me, they accepted me. They encouraged me, they blessed me, they believed God's best for me and yes at times communicated the truth in love to me. Larson tells a story about Sid Caesar who was the highest paid entertainer 
when he was in his 20s. Then barbiturates and alcohol got him. And he faded off the entertainment scene for many years in the U.S. His, his faithful wife stuck with him all those years. But one day, he was confronted with this question. Sid, do you want to live or do you want to die? And he said, I made a decision I wanted to live. And that meant changing my ways. He repented. Friends, that is the question the Lord's asking right now. Do you want to live? Or do you want to die? As you think of your enemy, you have a choice to make. You can choose death by putting, uh, by keeping yourself closed to the grace of God yourself and by putting your enemy behind the prison bars of your hatred, your anger, and your disgust. Or you can choose life by not only receiving the love and grace of Jesus yourself, but by freely extending it to others, including your enemy. Which will it be for you? Would you stand with me for closing prayer? As I pray, I'm just going to invite um, those who are baptized, if you'd come forward, just stand over here to the right. Let's pray. I just want you to take a moment before I pray. Let God speak to you. I mean, he has been, but what is he saying to you specifically right now? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your word. And the reminder today through the life of Jonah that even though many times only certain people seem to matter to us, all people matter to you. The poor matter to you. The wealthy matter to you. The educated, the uneducated. Married people, unmarried people, divorced people. Conservative people, liberal people, every color of skin, atheists and people of every religion matter to you. You love them, Lord. You gave your son Jesus to die for them that they may have life. And Lord, you want them to matter to us. And I pray, Lord, that you would, would help us to trust you to be the judge and that you would remind us daily that you want to use us to share your love and grace with those who do not have the same convictions same beliefs the same lifestyle that we do and especially with those who are on our least favorite people list Jesus you gave your life for them and I pray, Lord, that you would awake us to the truth. That we have committed offenses against you that are far greater than any offense anyone has ever committed against us. And yet every day, every day you give us grace. Every day you extend your mercy to us. Help us, Lord, to choose life and not death. Help us, Lord, to choose grace and not legalism or hate. Help us, Lord, to realize that when sin wins, everybody loses. On the other hand, when love wins, when grace wins, it's good news for everyone the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for these who have received your grace. 
and who now live in victory and freedom that you came to bring. I thank you for Guillermo, for the victory and freedom that he has received through faith in Jesus Christ. Pray, Lord, that you would bless him, you would anoint him, you would use him for your glory, I pray, in the precious name of Jesus. And now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you, brother, and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God be with you.